Hello and welcome to another episode of the 40 Athletes Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jason Holzer. Jimmy is not here today, but I got a substitute co-host today, Jonathan Flowers. Jonathan, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Looking forward to this show. Glad I could fill in for Jimmy. It's not going to be the same, but I'll try to do my best for everybody who's been watching to fill in for him and everything. Hey, man. Well, you know, our guest today is one of the top peak performance coaches in the world. Like, he's trained some of the top professionals um, in tennis, golf, in cricket, in India. And he has some really unique perspectives on mental performance that I think will give our, our listeners a different, unique perspective. Because, you know, mental performance has kind of become a growing topic. Um, but yeah, I think we're going to be excited to see what the, what uh, uh, Shamil has for us today. Yeah. So, yeah, for you guys who are listening, um, it's, it's Shamala. He is he wrote a great book There's one he has called Breathe, Believe and Balance. It's great. It's a great book. And it's and it's how it's he also hosts a podcast, I believe, called Perennial, um, Perennial Bit Wisdom. It's great. Per- yeah. Perishable Wisdom. Yeah. Perishable, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys. So if you're looking for his book or his podcast, that's something else you should look at, too. But, yeah, let's get the guy on board. And let's hear what he has to say. Yeah, definitely. Hello, Shamala. How's it going today? Hi, Jason, Jonathan, guys. Thank you so much for welcoming me onto the 4D Sports Podcast. I'm so excited to have this chat. Yeah, yeah, we're excited to have you, man. And uh, let's go ahead and dive right in here. First of all, in your opinion, what is peak performance and what is mindfulness? Because I know you're big on both of those. So in your in your definition, what would those things to what would those two things mean to you? So your question is peak performance and mindfulness, correct? Yes. Yeah. What in your definition, what is peak performance? And what is mindfulness and how do they maybe even intersect with each other? Well, you know, contrary to what most people think, they really dovetail very, very closely. Now, mindfulness is your ability to hold your awareness in a particular thought, feeling object. So most people who are mindfulness practitioners will talk about breath work or they'll talk about, uh, you know, focusing on your breath or meditation or chanting. Or perhaps in India, some of them say look at a lamp or a light and just hold your awareness allow your thoughts to come in and go, don't hold them. But each time something comes in, refocus on your breath. You'll hear Buddhist practitioners say, when a thought comes in, just constantly bring yourself back to your breath and hold it there. So that's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is the ability to hold your awareness on a particular thing. Okay, And the reason why I mean, when someone says it like that, it sounds relatively easy to do, isn't it? But the truth is, it's the most difficult thing to do. It's the most difficult thing to do because we live in what is called a hyper distraction world. We live in a world where we distract it all the time. And that has started right from our childhood. When you were eating food, you're put in front of a TV whilst you're eating, someone's talking to you, you know, you you know, all sorts of things were happening at the same time. You know, whilst the kid is playing, mom's trying to feed him. So we live in a world where we have stimulation everywhere and we're trying to shift our awareness all the time to these different stimulations. And that's become such a hard wiring in us that being able to hold our awareness on a particular thing is very, very difficult. So that's mindfulness. Now, peak performance is really pushing yourself to the upper limits of your Human, phys- human physiology and psychology. So what I refer to it as, I keep telling people I'm a high performance copet and my job is to upgrade your human operating system. I said, you guys change your phone, you update your iOS or your Android software all the time. I'm a person who, op- who upgrades your human operating system. So I 
upgrade the way you think, the way your body operates, how I push you out of the zone so that I'm constantly tapping the upper limits of your performance. I'm teaching you how to safely go out of your comfort zone and redefine yourself. Now, that's what peak performance is. Peak performance is really tapping into the essence of who you are. Now, why is these two so intricately important? Because the truth is that in a high-performance environment, in a high-pressure environment, you need to have pinpoint focus on what the task is on at hand, and that's the only way you're going to achieve that objective. If you have any distraction, if you allow your mind to move in any direction, right, that microsecond in which the mind has slipped is going to derail you from your focus and you're done. In the world of sport, you know, in the Olympic Games, we say the difference between one and four is 0.5%. 0.5% in the 100-meter finals is 100, 200 of a second. You know, that's less than the blink of an eye, you know. So people are losing gold medals by hundreds of a second, by margins that I can't even see. That is the difference. Now, that difference can come down to lack of focus, lack of preparedness, lack of psychological awareness, stimulation control. It can come down to a million factors in there. So mindfulness helps you channel your practice energy, channel the variables you've controlled in practice and safely transmute them into a competition environment so that you can hold your awareness and execute in accordance with your game plan. And the reason why this is so fundamentally important, guys, I'll just say one more thing before I, we bounce back in, is that most athletes, okay, in any code of sport, okay, the reason why they're failing is because they're changing the game plan in the height of pressure, which means in a, in a game situation, when there's pressure and there's inevitably going to always be pressure in a game situation, right? Variables are going to be changing. An athlete changes his game plan and doesn't have the confidence or the focus to stick on what he practiced with. You see, the greatest athletes on the planet stick to a game plan. And they know that that game plan will not always yield success, but the probability of it yielding success is far greater if you stick to it than if you change it, right? Mindfulness helps you stick to the plan that you decided you were going to go into that game with, okay? That is important. And now everyone listening, some person may come and ask, yeah, but sure, shouldn't you adapt to changing variables? Yes, you're adapting to changing variables, but you're not shifting your game plan. You know, there's a difference between game plan and there's a difference between being aware of variables changing. And it's subtle and it's nuanced, but that's the interjection point between why mindfulness is so important and its contributing role in peak performance. That's awesome. So let me let me throw something out here. Like I was in your book, you know, it's called Breathe, ba Breathe Believe, and Balance. You talk about this emotional toxicity. You talk about how do we know when holding on to negative emotions too long and what are the ways we can manage and navigate those things or get rid of those negative thoughts in, in a healthy way? Like being a performer professional athlete and being a U.S. Army soldier, I know stuff happens and we always like you overcome, you improvise, you adapt, you change. But those negative thoughts sit with you like you had a bad first quarter or first half or first period or you had a bad encounter and they're still there. Like you're thinking in your mind, is this going to happen again or um, how am I being viewed or what's going on? Like you were talking earlier, how do you know when you're ma not managing that and helping? What ways can we do that? 
Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. And, you know, Gary Player, the famous South African golfer, always said, nobody loses a championship with one bad shot. You lose it with the consecutive bad shot, which means right. your inability to forget the first mistake you made. And that can really and truly go across all sports. It's your inability to really let go in that. And you're right. That's the difference between athletes who are great and athletes who are really bordering on that fringe of greatness they doubt themselves. And you find that great athletes, once again, come back and default to what they know best. Okay. Mm -hmm. They trust what they know best. Now, where does this come in? And what's that? What's the tipping point there, Jonathan? The tipping point is competence. Competence equals confidence. Competence is built in practice, right? Competence built in practice builds confidence in practice, which gives you the confidence to transmit that process, that systemic process into competition, irrespective of what's happening in there. Okay. If you've not, and the, you know, in sport, we have a beautiful saying, they say, and you know this, they say, if you bleed in practice, you'll sweat in competition. Okay. It's the bleeding in practice that gives you the confidence to trust the process, even if it's not going your way in a high pressure situation. That voice that's talking to you is the voice of self-doubt. The only way to eradicate self-doubt is by, by hardwiring in yourself the competence to trust the process, by hitting that ball so many times, by hitting that shot so many times that it becomes second nature to you. Okay. And when we go into talking about flow states, remember, in flow states, there is no voice talking to you. There's just one voice, and that one voice is completely synchronized. You're drawing information, and you're using your skill sets and your strengths to navigate changing variables in a high-pressure situation in a split second. So when you're in a state of flow, there isn't even a, that second voice of doubt coming in. Okay? So if you're getting doubt, you're not even in a state of flow. Okay. And, and how we get into a state of flow is a completely different science as well that we can, we can get into talking about as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's dive into that. So, you know, I think for a lot of people wondering, like, well, how do we get into those flow states? Because I think there's a little bit of a resistance at first before you actually break through that flow state. Is that correct? I mean, you got you to actually use your willpower to get there. But once you get there, then it's almost like, like an airplane taking off uh from the from the landing spot like uh, from the runway it, it takes a lot of energy to get there but once you're there you use a lot less energy actually yeah yeah that's true you will it's the energy expenditure in a state of flow is probably one of the least important variables that we'll try to look at the first thing that we need to understand about getting into a flow state and i speak about this a lot is that the only way you're going to get into a state of flow in competition is if you're physiologically operating submaximally, which means you're operating at about 80 to 85% of your max. Okay. Once you cross the 90% threshold, even for some people, even that 85% may be too high. Once you cross the 90% threshold, you're physiologically being tapped out too much. And anyone who's physiologically tapped out, I mean, you as an as an ex-army person would know as well that once yeah. the body's tired, the first faculty that's compromised is thinking. You can't yeah. think. Now, flow is a psychological state. It's not a physiological state. Okay. Now, what you need to do is the prerequisite is you need to be good enough to operate physiologically in parallel with the best whilst you're operating submaximally for you to even stand a chance to get into a flow state. That's the that's the first prerequisite. 
that the you need to have the body which is the vehicle the vehicle needs to be strong enough resilient enough to withstand changing pressures to withstand the physiological demands of operating at that level with the best before you even get into a state of flow okay. then the second thing is the amount of work you do now we look at conscious and subconscious now we talk about something called automation of skill automation of skill is transferring a practice or a skill set from the conscious mind to the subconscious mind and that happens through repetitive practice that happens through bleeding in practice yeah. so the more skills that you transfer from the conscious mind to the subconscious mind it creates more processing space in the conscious mind okay which okay. means that so you want to have a large part of your toolkit right operating out of that subconscious state where you don't really have to think about it you know how the ball lands on your foot how you navigate it how you feel things it's subtle it's nuanced but you don't have to think about it it's just it just happens in a state of flow okay now that creates a little bit of space and that little bit of space what happens is the brain operates and and some researchers would say that the brain in flow state is in a theta state i con contrary to that i think it's in a gamma state it's in a super high frequency state that's processing information now if you look at meditators when you when you analyze buddhist monks buddhist monks in high meditative states are not in theta they're in gamma mm. okay downloading information from the universe at a rate and it, and that perception of slowness is in there the stillness and the slowness is in there while they're downloading and that's what's happening in a state of flow in a state of flow your practice filters and your knowledge filters are helping you filter the information you download in real time to navigate changing variables and that's really and truly my theory of flow and that's how i really and truly train athletes so when i'm trying to train an athlete first prerequisite is pushing the body physiologically and we use all sorts of sleep analysis heart rate analysis lactic acid testing to make sure they're operating submaximally in that state the second thing we're doing is we're making sure we're practicing everything repetitively so that they're really mastering the skill sets that are needed and the skill sets are the basics you remember there's a beautiful saying where champions do the basics the best remember that champions do the basic and that's where novice athletes constantly get confused what they try to do is they try to build a repertoire of skills but they don't have 100% confidence on that banking skill right mm -hmm. so you got to understand what is that skill you can bank on and that is what you've got to have mastery over so you transfer these skills through automation and mastery from the conscious to the subconscious mind and then through analysis you watch your opponents you watch past players you read you understand these are the knowledge filters that come in so that when something is happening in real time even though you've not practiced it there's some piece of information in there which helps you process information that you're downloading with respect to how to use these automated components of your skill set to navigate these changing variables it's quite complex but you know this is as simple as i can make it Oh, that's you know. Here's something. I mean, you you talked about those percentages, and we always we've all heard that phrase. It's um, 
it's 80% of there's 80% is like your physical capabilities, your practice, something and then 20% of it's mental, but it's actually the opposite where it's, it's 80% mental. that 20% you can kind of control with diet, exercise, practice, but that 80% is all over the place. That's a, that's a big margin. And a lot of things creep in there. Like let's think about like insecurities or you've had a bad game or, you know, I've, I've had this, I've told Jason this, I had a Michael Jordan story. I, I, um, when he was coming off a of space jam, he had a practice um, facility down in LA and like Reggie would come down there and Kenny Smith and all those guys, but they had guys like us who were, they were playing against who they, we weren't, we weren't serious NBA players. We were good athletes and they would work on stuff. And we had a good game one day and my boy Marcus was just jawing. And I'm like, dude, you know, I'm a confident person, but we're here. We're one, we're getting paid here. Second, you know, you guys are you talking to here? And we actually had a really good game. We actually won one. And Marcus kept talking, like, I could play in the league. I can handle these guys. And this is all mental, emotional bullshit. The next year, Michael comes back down. And this is a whole year later. I'm not thinking about this. I'm thinking about playing in the, in the NFL next year, and I didn't care. Michael comes in and goes, hey, we're running next. And these two guys are, are running with us. And I was like, huh? Like, <laughs> like, why are you yelling at us? We get on the court. I didn't touch the ball. I didn't. He, I didn't get a pass. I didn't get a rebound. They just crushed us so bad to let us know. We always played to 25. It was 25 to 3, 25 to 5, and then you rotate out. We got back in, 25 to 4, 25. He just crushed us, and it was just – he remembered we had a good game last year, and he was that mentally focused on, I have to prove to you that you didn't you weren't even close. So those insecurities, like, what can you do? Like, that crushed me. Like, I, literally, I started questioning everything about me as an athlete after that. What can you do? You've hit the nail on the head. And you've said, Jonathan, you've said some really important things for everyone listening out there. So Jonathan says, right, that uh, it's 90% mental or 99% mental. I think even Jordan says that, isn't it? It's 99% uh, inspiration, 1% perspiration or something like that. It goes on. and But the truth is that there's certain things that are non-negotiables. Okay. So being fit is a non-negotiable, mm-hmm. right? Being in the best shape of your life is a non-negotiable. Eating healthy is a non-negotiable. Having the right equipment, these are non-negotiables. So when we say it's 99% mental, what people don't realize, and and, and I, I meet a lot of athletes who say, yeah, it's mental. And so I'm saying, buddy, it's mental after the 99% of physical non-negotiables are ticked off. Yep. You understand? So you have got to be in the most physically supreme shape of your life right before the 99% mental even kicks in right now if you want to say 1% is physical yes it's 1% physical but that 1% means you tapping every component of physiology before the 99% mental kicks in and this is where people get it wrong okay so that that's the that's the first thing i think everyone who's listening should should do the second thing that I noticed, and I love the story about it, is that what, what they displayed to you, what Jordan displayed to you, was that a killing state, an athlete <laughs> a killing state. Yeah, and, you can't, and you cannot teach a killing state. You know, that killer instinct is it's inborn. Mm. You know, they won't let it go. You'll see it in great athletes. And that killer instinct is what silently fuels them. He's like, hey, this person said something. Oh, sure. sure. I'll show him. He goes back and he's doing a hell of a lot of work. Whoa. He's not forgetting. that. That's the fuel. 
you know, that's the fuel for champions. And that fuel can come from anyone. You know, the mindset is such that he's not thinking, hey, this guy's an amateur. Hey, this guy doesn't even play in the league. No, they draw fuel from everywhere. But it's the killings that they have. I've seen this everywhere. The other, the other mistake amateurs make is that, you know, I travel a little bit on the PGA Tour and work with some golfers. I tell you, in an entire round of golf, I'll hit one ball better than a pro would. I would... Every round, I would hit one ball. I'm, I'm a pretty decent golfer. So I would hit one ball better. The problem is that they are hitting the other 69 or 70 balls better than me. Yeah. You understand? So, and amateurs get this big ego from the one that they've done better. One mm -hmm. jump, one catch, one thing, and like, hey. And the probability of them repeating it, the very next ball is zero. And, you know, there's a beautiful saying for everyone listening out there. We have this in sport. We say amateurs practice till they get it right. Professionals practice till they can't get it wrong. Mm, and this is all we That's do. a good one. All, all I do, I stand there making sure that the probability of them getting it wrong is dropping every single practice. And, with every, and I'm throwing a shitload of variables at them changing variables to make sure they're executing skills at high levels of mastery, irrespective of what the changing variables in the ecosystem are. And I'm changing the variables so that the mind doesn't even get a chance to prepare for it. You know, and, and one of the biggest mistakes, I don't know whether it happens so much in, in uh, basketball, because, you know, basketball is a five-man sport. Everyone's massively important, but you see this a lot in games like cricket, or maybe you see this in, in baseball. I, I'm not so familiar with these sports. But, you know, in the game of cricket, if you watch it, you get professional bowlers like you get professional pitchers. Okay, mm -hmm. And the game gets to a really tight situation. And the batters are so in the zone that the professional bowlers really can't get them out. Okay, And then you get a part-time guy who comes who really doesn't do this. He's actually a professional hitter. And you just get him to throw a pitch. Okay. And the pro, pro batter can't hit it, right? You know, what is happening there? That is changing the variables. Now, their mind is so in sync with fastballs coming, curveballs coming. They're so in sync that sometimes disruption doesn't always happen on the upper end of scale. Sometimes you can disrupt their psyche by just throwing something that's so mundane at them that their brain doesn't know how to process yeah. something that's so slow or something hmm. that's literally so crap you know <laughs> I mean, that's a disruption yeah. you know and these are tricks that that we do and and this is what you have to do because anything can disrupt you anything any information processed through the five senses can disrupt the mind anything hmm. and you uh you mentioned too uh on one of your posts recently you said that it's important to be able to quit to win and i and you and you, you challenge the, the 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 quote of uh Winners never quit, quitters never win. But you yeah. actually say sometimes you actually need to quit to win. Can you explain like your what do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that's I mean, you know, Vince Lobardi said that, isn't he? He said winners winners never quit and quitters never win. But the truth is that in my experience, winners know when to quit. Okay. Now, and, and the reason I say this is, see, my job is a, I'm a high performance coach, but fundamentally I'm a scientist. Okay. And 
you're coming to the table when you're working with professional athletes at the top of the game. Remember, very little of what we're doing is actually tried and tested. We are the guinea pigs that are trying it there because if it had some validity to it that was scientifically published then everybody knows about it, there's a good chance everyone's trying it. Okay, mm. so we're always looking for things that are tangential or deviations from what's happening to give us that micro advantage in some shape and form. So a lot of times I'm coming to the table with a theory that I'm willing to test. And I get a sample group of my athletes willing to try this out, and then we document the evidence. When I say winners know when to quit, they know when this theory has got a glass ceiling and the amount of effort we're putting in versus the yield we're gonna get out of it is just disproportional. So, you know, a quitter, when I'm saying a winner knows when to quit, a winner will realize that, hey, I'm wasting too much energy on this and this is not going in the right direction. You know, I've already invested so much in this. I need to perhaps go back to the drawing board and relook at something. Okay. That's what I mean by winners know when to quit. And, you know, a lot of this is based on a research theory. It's called the sigmoid curve. And the sigmoid curve is really beautiful. It's a curve that shows that, you know, every single skill has a half-life before it plateaus. So there's a learning phase where you don't get much success. And then you get a hockey stick growth curve where you're getting a lot of success from a skill and then it plateaus. Hmm. Now, what the sigmoid curve says, in the middle of that curve, you should change something. And then what happens is you, you increase the spike again before it plateaus again. Now, how do professional athletes use the sigmoid curve? We use it in this way. We look at what we can do to our technique, to our training methodology, to our strategy, not when we're losing, but when we're winning. Oh. Okay. The reason why we do this is because two athletes are here. One guy is worn, he's here. The other is here. Now, remember, if I'm giving this guy, a, if I'm losing, this guy's coming closer. So the gap between us is really small. When is the gap between the two people the greatest? It's after someone's won. That's the time you can afford to take risks and press forth the advantage. Okay, so the sigmoid curve in professional sport is about teaching athletes the willingness to change something when things are working, the mm -hmm. willingness to try something yep. new when you're winning. That's the sigmoid curve. And that's the secret source that I look for in athletes. I'm looking for how coachable are you? How willing are you to change something that's working to get even better? That's it. Because you're always going to get two types of athletes. You're going to get athletes who just want to sit back on their haunches and rely on that success. And those people, we don't have stories of them because they come and go like this. But the guys who we talk about are the guys who are applying the sigmoid curve. They're going back practice that killer instinct is honing them to go back and change something to do it constantly better all the time they're always coming with something up their sleeve and and that's what i mean by winners know when to quit you know we know when to quit a strategy to adopt a new strategy to give us further growth that's interesting because a lot of times people will they look to change something when something's not working. But what you're saying is like to go to another level, add to something what's working and shift it because you have that baseline of mastery. Now you got to get uncomfortable again. Is that kind of what you're saying? Then? Exactly. Yeah. Jason, yeah. I love Guys, what you're saying because I want to add to that. Like I used to have, I have this phrase and I coach kids and youth kids and younger athletes and I train athletes on the side and like of having a real job, of course, but it's um, the one thing I always tell them, a technician, 
will beat an athlete every time because sometimes that guy's not feeling it. He's tight. He's sore. He's a little tired. He's off. He's fatigued, whatever. But technique, if you perfect it and you work at it and you say, I'm going to train for this contingency, it may never happen. And I've done that where I've trained, 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 trained. Didn't happen ever. And then one time it does, I'm ready and the other guy wasn't. And I and I was, I had a great game. And, you know, yeah. It was awesome. You know, I, I, I'll tell you a story on this. I used to have this, uh, I worked with a lot of cricket teams, you know, and there was a cricket team uh, called the KwaZulu-Natal Dolphins where I started off my career almost 20 odd, more than 20 odd years ago. And that team had a lot of national players and we had one fielder batsman. His name was John T. Rose. He was exceptional. He was great. He could hit a single stump from literally anywhere, 30 meters in a 30 meter circle. He was an inner fielder. And, you know, I remember him, he was actually that good that he got an outfielding, he got offered an outfielding contract for a baseball team. Okay, wow. that's how good he was, yeah. And and every single day after a three, four-hour team practice, we'd go back onto the field, we'd put a stump out there, take about 100 balls, and he'd practice every single day. Now, remember, at that stage, I'm looking at 97, 98, 99, he was already the best fielder in the world, hands down. But yet he was practicing two hours every single day. And I keep telling this in corporate talks when I tell people, what is the unwritten rule for professional sportsmen? Professional sportsmen know that practice doesn't guarantee success. You know that you can practice. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to win a game. You can practice for 10 hours a day. It doesn't even guarantee that you're going to get match time. So what does practice actually do? Practice ensures that when you get an opportunity, you're prepared for it. And that's all practice will do. Because there's no greater travesty on the planet than getting an opportunity you're not prepared for. So yeah. as a professional athlete, you go out there every day and you bust your gut because when that opportunity arises and that opportunity could only come in one hundredth of a second or one pass or one kick. And if you haven't bust your gut in preparation, that opportunity is gone before you know that. And the greatest travesty in anyone's life is to get an opportunity you're not prepared for. So I wish everyone on the planet learned this. I wish they realized, hey, What is the one opportunity I want for? This is it. Now, practice, practice, practice. I mean, I coach entrepreneurs and I tell entrepreneurs, listen, if you happen to ride in an elevator with Elon Musk and it's going to take exactly 20 seconds to go from ground to the third floor where he's jumping out, what's the one freaking line you're going to tell him to make him want to hold the button or hold the elevator? That's the practice. Yeah. you got to understand what's the opportunity you are looking for. Because when you know what you're looking for, you'll see it when it comes. But then every single day of your life, you dedicate every waking minute to understanding how am I going to freaking nail this when it comes. That is a secret that athletes know that no one else seems to have figured out yet. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's, a, there's a phrase we used to use, Jay, sorry about that, but there's a phrase we used to use called be ready, stay ready, you, you have to get, then you don't have to get ready. And that's yeah. what, like that phrase is like, I say that to kids all the time. I say it to my daughter and friends. It's like, if you're, you know, I when I got to college, I played at San Jose State University. I was fourth string. I wasn't even seeing the field. So I went to the special teams coach and said, hey, put me on every special teams, punt, extra point, everything. I mean, stuff that people don't want to be on. I said, put me on all of it because I just wanted to be on the field and getting film and getting video and getting my time, whatever it took. 
coincidentally got my sophomore year, our starter got hurt, another guy transferred because he wasn't getting playing time, and a kid didn't make grades. I went from being four string to in the first rotation. As a junior, I was I was starting. And I said, I told guys in London, you're not getting your job back. It's not happening. It's just not. Yeah. All the work right, yeah. I'm I'm ready. You weren't and you lost it. I'm good. And I never then I never saw the bench again. Well, you know that's a, that's the killing instinct. That's the killing yeah. instinct we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> well, and you know some of the things though that hold people back from being prepared, they might be prepared, prepare, prepare, but those insecurities will hold them back yeah. even if they're ready. So you talk about there's two different ways we feel insecure. What are those insecurities and how can we manage them to make them lesser of a of a factor? in our confidence. So the two reasons why someone feels insecure is the first reason is a lack of control. Okay. So when you're trying to control an environment and you don't have control over the environment, then you'll feel insecure. And that this reason extrapolates across whether it's your relationships, whether it's your finance, whether it's your work environment, whether it's your friend circle, wherever it is. If you don't have control over the environment, you have a sense of insecurity. The thing that people don't realize is that everything is changing every second. Mm. So it's impossible to control something that's ever evolving and ever changing. So if you think you have control over an ecosystem, right, then what you've created is a false sense of security. You've created just a false sense of security because the truth is everything is changing. Every second, a person's thoughts are changing. The environment is changing. Everything's changing. So the mere fact that you think you got something under control is in itself a false sense of security. Okay. And the problem with that false sense of security is once you feel you have control, then you become blinded to the changing variables. Now, the secret to adapting and succeeding in any environment, whether it's a high performance sport environment or whether it's a corporate environment. And this is a term I borrow from my friend, Keith Ferrazzi. He says, radical adaptability. So radical adaptability is the ability to change in accordance with whatever variables are changing around you, isn't it? Now that is the secret, but control gives you that false sense of security which prevents you from radically adapting to an ever-changing environment. So that's the first reason someone feels insecure. The second reason a person will feel insecure is when there is a fear of being replaced. Okay. Mm. So in jobs, think, you know, you think someone's going to get your job. You think someone, your girlfriend's going to find someone else. Your boyfriend's going to find someone. When you have a fear of being replaced, insecurity creeps in. Okay. And, and these are the only two reasons why someone will be insecure. Okay. Now, how do we eradicate the fear of replacement? Well, you eradicate it simply by communication. Because there's a very good chance when you feel, hey, you know what? I'm under pressure. This person doesn't like me. That person. There's a very good chance that there's a small gap between the way you're perceiving the situation and reality. Okay. And the only way to close this gap is communication, is to be able to have the courage to have a conversation about what you're feeling, what your expectations are, what their expectations are, what is the malalignment in that and address it. Because the truth is that if someone's going to replace you, they're going to replace you. So effective communication is the only way to salvage a situation. But if you don't communicate effectively, you could manifest a situation that's not even there. You know, So fear of replacement and lack of control are the two reasons why 
a person will fundamentally feel insecure in any single environment. And any single environment is exactly the same in a sporting world. You know, you see this in any team in sport. And, and I'm fortunate enough to have spent a lot of time in team sports as well. And you see the infighting because, you know, everybody's friends, but everyone's also going for the same position. Everybody yeah. wants to play every single minute of the game. Everyone's fearing replacement. You can see the anxiety that creeps up during contract times, all of that. You know, uh, and you can see that everybody wants time. Everybody wants control of that situation. Everything, it, it plays up in every single situation. And an effective leader, that's why I've said often that the art of good coaching is actually the science of diversity management. I'll repeat this. The art of good coaching is the science of diversity management. Okay, if you want to be a good coach, you need to be able to manage diverse changing variables, diversity management, diversity in religion, diversity in caste, diversity in gender, diversity in skill set, diversity in communication techniques, diversity in information processing, diversity in skill development, diversity, diversity in a million things. This list can go on and on. But the art of coaching is the management of these diverse variables. And when someone is aware of this, you see, awareness is so powerful. You started off with, we opened this conversation with mindfulness. Mindfulness is what? Awareness. When you come in with the right lens of awareness, then you're able to look at information the right way. You know, if you don't know what you're looking for, you'll never find it. Yeah. So that's why even this one piece of information to any aspiring coaches out there, if you just understand just this one sentence, the art of coaching is the science of diversity management. If you just remember this one sentence, you'll now approach your art form looking for diverse variables and how to manage them. You will fundamentally become a better coach already. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's a good point, uh, Shamil. Um and uh, so when you when you talk about that, like especially in the professional sports world, that's that's like sports is the one thing where we have all kinds of m multiple backgrounds. What what can we do as coaches to get to know people on a personal level first? Because I know a lot of times coaching used to be like, hey, you do it this way, this way, this way, but now it's more like the diversification of of a personal touch to coaching. So what are some clues that we can give coaches on how do you become a better diverse better in coaching diversity? So the few things is, you know, a good coach firstly needs to know himself. You know, you need to really understand yourself first. And by understanding yourself, you need to understand what your strengths are. The worst coach is a coach that's trying to do everything. That's trying to motivate. That's trying to do the biomechanics correction. That's trying to coach the various types of skill sets. That's trying to do everything. First, when you understand what your core strength is, you coach from your core strength. That's the, that's the first secret that you need to understand. And if your core strength is not good enough, then you hire people that form a part of your support team that dovetail your strengths so that you've got a solid unit working there. But if you think that you're going to go into an environment with people who are professionals or are highly skilled in there and that you're going to go in with sub-average information and impress someone who's so skilled in something, that's the first fundamental problem that you have. Yeah. So the first thing is know yourself and be willing to bring in the expertise needed right, to contribute to the team. Remember, it's important that 
if a person can add even just 1% of value to the team, the coach's responsibility is to create an ecosystem for them to add that value. Okay, that's fundamentally very, very important. The second thing is, you know, a lot of coaches come in with this business-like authoritarian type of relationship where they want their voice to be the only voice. You know, it's called a coach-led model. And then you get a player-led model where it's the player's emotions that are really front and center. And a good smart coach realizes that no matter how good he is, the work has to be done by the athlete. So you fundamentally have to empower the athlete. Now, how do you empower the athlete? So we have what's called a learning model in sport. And that learning model goes something like this. It's play, practice, reflect, analyze. Play, practice, reflect, analyze. Four parts. Play, practice, reflect, analyze. And this is broken up into two parts. The play and the practice is the execution part. It's the skill development part. The reflect and the analyze is the cognitive part. It's the thinking part of that model. Okay? The greatest athletes in the world and the greatest coaches in the world are the ones that bring both parts together, which means that when an athlete's made a mistake, you give him the opportunity to reflect, analyze that mistake and correct it himself. Mm. And you have to trust yourself enough to be patient during that process because the fundamental mistake you can make is think for the athlete. And most coaches do that. Most coaches are like, what the hell's he done? Call him into the change room, beat him with a stick. You do this here. That guy's not learned anything because he doesn't even know what he's done wrong before you've told him what to do next. Mm. Like, coaching is a science and it's at the core of it is tolerance and patience. And this is why I fundamentally think that, you know, most of my success has come because I spent so much of time in a temple, in an ashram as a monk, practicing mindfulness. Because in any situation, I'm able to bring a level of tolerance to this environment. I'm able to bring a high level of patience to environment to allow a person to learn at their own speed. You know, that's fundamentally what is needed. So for the coaches out there, you can't rush anything. You know, nature happens in a certain way. A baby takes nine months to be born. No matter how angry and how anxious you are, it's not coming out in four months. You understand? Yeah. That's what yeah. you're trying to do in with your athletes. It's that you're not giving them the gestation period to learn and evolve by you forcing information down their throat. You're trying to fast track that learning process. But each one of us has our own learning process. And as a coach, your job is to understand the strengths and put the strengths together as a piece of a puzzle, right? So that you have a match winning strategy. And I mean, I work with so many professional sports teams and I keep asking uh, the head coaches, you know, I, I'm never in a position as a head coach. I'm always a peak performance coach. So I'm always looking at physiology and psychology and I'm looking at strategy. And I always tell the head coaches who are signing the contracts, I said, you have to ask one question and one question only. You have to ask this guy, what is the one skill that you can bank him on? That he, what is his one skill that you can sign him on? So if this guy says, you know what, man, I can hit the ball out of the park in the seventh out of nine innings or whatever in baseball. Or, you know, if you throw me the ball and I'll, if there's five seconds left on the clock and it comes to me here, I will hit, I'll hit the back of the board or I'll hit the hoop or whatever it is. If you know what it is, then you know how to plan, okay? You cannot 
plan or strategize for a person who doesn't even know how strong their strength is and whether they can execute it in a high pressure situation. You cannot. It's impossible. It's not the coach's fault. It's not the athlete's fault. But the problem is nobody asks this question. Nobody asks a person, what can I bank on you? Right? Because everything else will fall in place when you know what you can bank on that person for. Well, it's funny you bring that up because it's like coaches and bosses and companies are, are similar. Like they're the best bosses are like, it's not do it this way. This is how I did it. And, and they, they can't be a skill set person to everything in the job. And like you said, at the end of the day, the employees or the players, they're the ones who have to execute. And if you're not empowering them, and that, that word is so thrown around so gingerly of empowerment. Empowerment means you have to give us a chance to make mistakes. You have to give us a chance yeah. to find new ideas. Be innovative. You have to give us a chance to understand that there's a different way to do things based on what my skill sets are. And if I did, I have a different skill set than you. And it's really funny to me that like you look at corporations that fail or, or company cultures that fail or team cultures that fail. It's when they lack that fundamental understanding that you can be the greatest mental person and knowledge of what you do. But at the end of the day, the unit, the group has to actually execute. And if you can't bring out their best and find their individual skill sets, like you were saying, to say, this is what I can bank on. Like, I know this guy's a good designer. This guy's a great motivator. This guy's a great engineer. This guy really is great at handling finance. And you put that together, it works. I can build a product. This guy will help me design it. This guy will help make sure it works. This guy will help make sure you can pay for it, how to market it. And you have to put it all together. It's yeah. the same thing with teams. And I just love that you said that because it is my biggest frustration with corporate America is having been in the military and having been in professional sports is they don't get that. They are yeah. really... Like, again, we have to make money. That's a part of the real world. But they overshadow and wonder why are you making a lot more money or consistently making money quarter over quarter? Because you don't get that. You just don't. <laughs> this is a fact, yeah. And 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 that's the, you know, I mean, corporate world can learn so much from the world of professional sport, yeah. especially in, in our operating system, in the mindset, you know. And, and talking of mindset, you know, one of the fundamental questions that people always ask me is like, hey, What's the one thing that a person should learn? You know, what's the one thing, one thing? And firstly, I tell people, you know, I wish life could come down to one thing, right? There are a million one things that you'll need to get right. And if it was just one thing, then uh, everyone would have done it by now. Okay. But the easiest place to start is the way I rephrase that as saying, you got to adopt what I call a student mentality, you know? And every athlete I've ever worked with, whether they're number one in the world in any sport, whether they're the best coach, wherever they are, I keep saying to myself, I've been a student for 25 years. You know, I'm still a student. I'm still studying on the field. I'm still studying here. But what's the beauty of being a student? The beauty of being a student is you're willing to learn from everyone. Yeah. Think of when you were in school, you know, you didn't care who came and taught you. If they taught you something, you learned from them. Right. If you're a student, you fail fearlessly. You don't give a damn about failure. Right. If you're a student, you're humble. If you're a student, you're managing your expectations. If you're a student, you're willing to bounce back and try. And you're not letting a failure define who you are. These are the subconscious mindsets that are deeply entwined with this overarching theme, which are called student mentality. And that's the only thing you need to cultivate. The problem in, in the corporate world is we try to cultivate this persona of everyone's a hero. 
everyone's warrior, mm-hmm. you know. And and when you the when you that hero, when you want to be that person, you know, the expectations are exceptionally high. But more than the expectations is, you don't give yourself the leeway to make a mistake. You know, you expect it to get it right every time, and you expect it to show up great every time. And you know, we when you, earlier on you mentioned emotional toxicity. Well, yeah. that's the byproduct of setting such high expectations of yourself and how you want to show up for the world that you can't ever show up. You don't trust yourself to show up in a vulnerable state. But the truth is that happens every minute of the day. There's something that can make us vulnerable. But the problem is you shield it from everyone else. Now, emotional toxicity is when we hold things inside us. Students never hold anything inside us. If you want to take student even deeper, I would say adopt a childlike mentality. Because why? Childlike mentality has innocence to it and has playfulness to it. You know, so you you take on any new experience with a sense of adventure, which even a student doesn't do. So if you can bounce between the child and the student, you'll have probably one of the most remarkable lives ever. Yeah. That's a that's a great uh, great segue into our final part here, Shamil. And we uh, we always end it with four questions with forty athletes. So uh, I'm gonna remember that have a childlike and student like mentality, no matter how old you get, and you have a life of adventure. So uh, I think that's that's one of my big takeaways here. But our first question is this, and again, it's lighting around, so answer it in, in about a minute or less here. So, what is the best life lesson sports has taught you? The best life lesson sport has taught me is to fail fast, you know, fail super quickly. And when you, when I say fail fast means after you fail, try again so quickly that the emotion of the previous failure doesn't even get a chance to hit the surface. Mm. Got it. Okay. If you could spend time with anyone you admire in sports, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Dead or alive, it, it would have to be Muhammad Ali, you know. I love him. You know, I think Muhammad Ali, you know, I'll tell you a story. In 1960, he was riding in a taxi cab going to the airport with his friend, Wilbert, and a journalist, Wilbert McClure and a journalist. And he turns to the journalist and says, you know, I'm going to fly to Rome. I'm going to whip those cats up and down. I'm going to come back. I'm going to turn pro, and I'm going to be the greatest champion the world has ever seen. And he said that when he hadn't even turned 18 years old. You know, the confidence of the man is just remarkable. And I would love to see where the seed of that confidence was born. How did, how did it happen? It's, it's just, you know, and what were, the, what were the filters that kept reaffirming it for him every single day? That's, yeah, that's, I mean, his confidence was probably, you know, even higher than Jordan, in my opinion, just to why he yeah, yeah. believed, you know. Um, say number three. What is the best advice you received from a coach or someone you've worked with or been around in the coaching field? The best, probably one of the best pieces of advice that I had from, uh, you know, I had a few few great coaches, but, you know, one of my earliest coaches was Phil Russell. He was a mentor of mine. Okay. And he taught me something really interesting. He taught me, you see, I work in the game of cricket. I started my career there and we're playing on a pitch. And he taught me how to have conversations with the people who are not exciting, but play a role in the game. 
So, for example, you know, uh, going and talking to pitch curators or going and talking to the people who set the stadium or the people who know the way the grass is cut or the way the wind blows in a stadium, mm -hmm. you know, because that is what gives you the tipping point. You know, so, for example, when you talk to a groundsman, for example, in cricket, you know, he lets you know just a simple thing like, hey, when did he last watch the pitch before the game started? And that lets you know, irrespective of how hard it feels, it lets you know how fast it's going to play. You know, mm. talk to the guy and he tells you, you know what, at four o'clock, the wind's going to change and it generally blows from this direction, this direction. You can line up your entire lineup so that the strongest guys are hitting with the wind to the shortest boundaries, you know. And that's not information you're going to get from athletes. And that's not information you're going to get from coaches. That's information you're going to get from the people you don't see that make things happen. Got it. So our fourth and final question is, what's the one character trait or skill or life skill that you would want in someone you're coaching? Humility, without a doubt. You know, uh, I, I want every single athlete that I'm working with to be a humble person, to understand. And, and humility is understanding that no matter how hard we're working and no matter what we do, there was some bigger, greater energy at play that helped it come together. And I want them to fundamentally understand that them, me, all of us are just vehicles for a beautiful energy out there. And we have a responsibility, being that vehicle, we have a responsibility to carry that energy into the world uh, with kindness and compassion. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Shamil, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. Uh, Jonathan, I probably need to watch this like two or three times to get all the notes down from this one because he just gave us so much great insight on a lot of things. Um, how can they, Shamil, how can they get a hold of you? How can they learn more about your work? Where, where are your books found? Uh, where can more people learn about you? Yeah, thanks, buddy. Uh, you can get my book. My book's called Breed, Believe, Balance. It's available on Amazon and on Kindle and stuff like that. You can order that. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Shamil, S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L. And then I have a YouTube page. I have uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever it is. You, you know, I, I, I check most of them pretty regularly. So just drop me a message if you'd like to stay in touch. And, uh, and please do stay connected. I would love to, to hear from everyone. I'd love to see how everybody's going. Share the knowledge. If, if there's anything that uh, you disagree with, I humbly apologize for that. Uh, <laughs> if there's anything that I can learn from, uh, please drop me a note. And uh, we're here to learn and grow, isn't it? So I look forward to connecting with everyone. Yeah, that's awesome. Like, this is the first time I've been on a podcast where I kept like resisting to like, write something down. Like yeah. I would... I kept reaching for a pen on my phone to type something. I'm like, wait, wait let me let me feel. I'm on I'm on a podcast live. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the good thing is it's recorded, Jonathan, so we can always go back exactly. and boom. Yeah, because yeah. of course like, there was a couple of times like, man, that was great. I should write this. Oh, well, that was great. Oh, we're the show. My bad. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate it, man. Appreciate you today. Yeah. Nice. Thank, you. Uh, Thank you guys. Enjoy your rest of your day, man. And uh, I know it's almost almost uh, time for you to go to bed over there in, in Mumbai, but uh, appreciate you joining us today. No worries. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Ha guys, have a wonderful day. And uh, to everyone who's listening, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Bye. Well, Jonathan, man, uh, you know, we can go to 40athletes.com and get and learn a little bit more about those life skills that uh, Shamil talked about today. So, um, you know, do you have anything else you want to add uh, to finish out today? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that anybody who's listening today is understand what that man was trying to say. It's understanding your mindset. 
And that, the, I mean, reuse sports is a vehicle. That's what 40 athletes about. That's what a lot of the guests talk about. And that's a vehicle to, to leverage information until I process it or get, you even give just a metaphor if you're not a sports person. But what that guy was talking about is mindset. And that applies to relationships, being a parent, being um, a student, being a boss, being in business, being an entrepreneur. And just li- you know, go back, listen to this, go check out his books and stuff. I read part of the passage from his book and it was just, okay, I get this. And there's areas where I was like, man, I'm still learning. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in my 50s, I'm still learning stuff. That's what I would say to everybody. Like, hey, take a chance and change it. Look at your mindset and how you can improve it. Yeah. Yeah, no, and uh, that's what we get into too at 40athletes.com. So uh, feel free to look us up, 40athletes.com, see how we can help you develop your mindset like Shamil talked about today. And we'll see you next week on the 40 Athletes Show.